And he says, you mean anybody could do this? I said, well, theoretically, anybody could do this. So he puts his hands on Melvin's shoulders and he says, you mean Melvin here could do it just as well? I I think he could do it. And then about a year later, suddenly Aaron comes out with this movie called Trading Places. (laughs) You're listening to Traders Insight Radio by Interactive Brokers. Find more podcasts and daily market commentary at tradersinsight.news. The following podcast contains options related material. Prior to listening to today's podcast, all listeners should read and familiarize themselves with the characteristics and risks of standardized options or ODD, which may be accessed through the link found in the show's notes or podcast description page. Please remember any trading discussions are for information purposes only and are not intended to portray recommendations. Please listen to further disclosures at the end of today's episode. Now, welcome to our show. Let's get started. Welcome to Traders Insight Radio and our first installment of our conversation with Thomas Petterfee, the founder and CEO of Interactive Brokers. We had so much to talk about that we thought it would be a good idea to split it into two conversations. In this episode, we get into how Thomas got started as a market maker back in the 1970s, and he has some celebrity anecdotes that may have been the impetus for a successful Hollywood movie. We hope you enjoy this segment and come back for episode two. Let's get started. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Traders Insight Radio. I want to welcome the founder and chairman of Interactive Brokers, someone whose name should be instantly familiar to everybody, Mr. Thomas Petterfee. He's joining us today from sunny Florida while I am in snowy Greenwich, Connecticut. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning, Steve. Um, <laughs> One of the things that I've been so curious about is you've been in the markets since the early 70s, and markets have changed. I actually uh, got my job as a a commodities trading firm in 1969. Ah, okay. Sorry, I was was dating it from the time you started on the Amex. Oh, no. So I got my job in 1969 as a computer programmer. And I, uh, that was the time when I first heard about put and call options. And then I soon acquired a friend who worked for an over-the-counter dealer because in those days, uh, put and call options were not listed yet. So I had this friend who worked for an over-the-counter options dealer. And he told me one day that, you know, there are these people who buy these options and often before they expire, they want to get out of them. And he said, some of them are very good buys and you should look into them. And I thought that's interesting, but I had no idea how to tell whether it's a good buy or not. So I started to think about how to value these by that time, mostly in the money call options, and I eventually came up with a formula, and uh, I programmed, I had a little home computer, and I programmed the computer with the formula, and uh, so I could just put in the strike and the volatility and the expiration, and it would give me the price. Uh, So that's how I came to fall in love with options. You know, over then in 73, the Options were listed in Chicago on stocks and in 75 on the Amex. And the Amex added uh, put options to the calls in 77. 
and that I couldn't stand it anymore. So I just quit my job and went down to the floor of the American Stock Exchange as a market maker in options. <laughs> now, now you're, that's great. Now, now your model probably predates Black Scholes. What, what did oh, well, you? Well, I didn't know. I, strangely enough, I didn't know uh, about Black Scholes at all. And on the Amex, nobody else knew about any uh, option model either. So I was basically the only one there having my uh, calculations. And, uh, you know, so every morning I went down with a printed sheet of, of, of various stock prices and the corresponding equivalent option prices. And uh, so I went from crowd to crowd and trying to look for options that looked interesting and and that's what I did and then eventually I had an accident and I couldn't stand on the floor and I also wanted to make the the operation bigger and that's when I decided to basically build a computer program and uh, acquire the chip that was able to interpret the electronic impulses from the uh, electronic ticker. And I engineered that into the home computer. And so I had always up-to-date option prices in the computer. So I built a program that continuously was cycling through these prices and settled on option spreads that were seemed to be out of whack. And it would print out, the, the program would print out those spreads. And now all we needed were members, exchange member employees who, to whom we could convey those uh, spread orders. And they would go to the specialist and, and try to get them done. Uh, but the specialist, I remembered from my floor days on the floor that the specialist really doesn't want to pay attention to you except if, if you have something to do that he would really love to do. So I know what to do. And finally, I came out with this ingenious idea that I would hire attractive young women to put them on the floor as members. And that's what I did. And lo and behold, the specialists were suddenly always paying attention to, to, to what the women wanted to do. And... Um, they didn't really have to know anything, but we put them through a two-week course to teach them, and then they became members of the exchange, and we put them on these seats. Uh, I had uh, exactly four women at this point, and one day I was going to uh, out for dinner with a friend of mine uh, in a restaurant on the Upper East Side, and we walk into this restaurant and there are uh, three people sitting there that my friend knew, three men uh, who were all in show business. And they invited us to sit with them, which we did. So one of the guys, uh, his name was uh, Aaron Russo. He was at that time Bat Midler's manager. And he was, this was in 1982. And he was also uh, 82 or 83, I think, 82. And he was, so he was Bettley Midler's manager, and he was also dabbling in movies. 
And the other fellow who sat next to him was a, was a black man by the name of Melvin Van People. And there were one or two other guys. So we sat down and after a while, Aaron turns to me and he said, so what do you do? And I tried to explain to him what I do and it, it, his job was done. And he says, you mean that these women don't really have to know what they are doing? They don't know if they haven't had years of experience. And I said, no, 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 no. They just tell them on the phone what they want to do. And they go in there and, and they do it. And he says, you mean anybody could do this? I said, well, theoretically, anybody could do this. So he puts his hands on Melvin's shoulders. And he says, you mean Melvin here, who, who I was sitting next to, could do it just as well? And May I, I interrupt said, for one second just to say that Melvin, yeah. for the listeners who don't know who Melvin Van Peebles is, was, he passed away. He was an um, independent film director. He had some success with uh, with some what they now call black exploitation movies. But uh, at this point, this was a couple of years after that. So he had some name recognition. Sorry. Well, I don't know how much name recognition he had. <laughs> I have never heard of him. But subsequently, I found out that he indeed made a couple of movies in which he starred. So anyway, he said, you mean Melvin here could do this? And I said, yeah, I think he could do it. He says, you know what? I'll make you a $10,000 bet. So in those days, $10,000 was like $50,000 today. So it was something. And I said, well, $10,000 bet to what? He said, well, you hire Melvin and he works for you for a year. And if you can uh, sustain him for a year, I pay you $10,000. And so I hired Melvin and he went through our two-week training course, and then he, we sent him down to the floor, and, and he was a very charming guy. Everybody loved him, and many people, of course, knew about the movie he made. And so he was very popular, and he did a fantastic job. And a year later, Aaron and I get together, and he, he says, well, you know, Melvin had done his year, and we're ready for him to do something else. But here is the $10,000. And I said, well, thank you very much. And that was it. And then about a year later, suddenly Aaron comes out with this movie called Trading Places. <laughs> so that was, he really made his $10,000 back many, 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 many times. <laughs> I don't think I, you told me this story recently after we did our first podcast. I was hysterical. I hope the listeners enjoy it. Um, the, the, let me just clarify for the listeners. Number one, the bet was not $1 as it was in the movie. It was a substantial amount of money. And number two, there was no insider trading involved as there was in the movie. Just a very good model. Uh, let me let me clarify that. Obviously, dramatic license. Right. Uh, that. <laughs> so I just want to be clear not to paint you as the villain here. This that this is just a great story. <laughs> what since so much has changed in the business over time, much of it is a result of of techno technological changes that you were behind. What do you still see as being the same? Well, everything is basically exactly the same. It just happens much quicker. The, the, the price differences 
are, which, which we negotiate for, are much smaller. So in those days, uh, you know, whether an option cost, first of all, options were trading in eights and quarters, not in pennies. So, uh, you know, the minimum bid offer spread was an eight. And then later on, it went to a 16s and then went to a nickel and then went down to one cent. So option commissions were something like 30, begin, the lowest was $30 a contract. And then it went on and some, uh, you know, brokers were charging $200 commission a contract. So it, it was um, completely different. And uh, for that reason, uh, and, and of course, there was chaos on the floors all the time because the rules called for uh, time and price priority, but nobody knew who came first and <laughs> yeah. what was the best price. And so that's why I kept pushing for automation. But, but the specialists basically didn't want to hear about that and the floor members didn't want to hear about it because they figured that they made most of their money on the chaos because nobody knew what was going on. So it was easy to change and aids here and there and scalp. And uh, my point was always, but look, guys, we could do 10 times or 100 times as many trades, even though we would make much less money on each contract. But they somehow didn't see it that way. And indeed, we needed a a new generation of people who were more technologically oriented who finally started to adopt uh, electronic technology to trading. And, and and therein lies, I guess, what allowed the change. You you, you mentioned, you know, money was, you know, the 10,000 was 50. You started with about 200,000, which is just under a million dollars today. And right. within about six years, you were the probably the largest market maker around how was this the result strictly of your better technology and better looking women or or was <laughs> <laughs> well no it was it was strictly the the idea that so my idea was always that given that i know what the number should be and nobody else did i could i was more certain that my numbers were right so i could bid a little bit higher and offer a little bit lower than my competitors because I knew exactly the price which was between my bid and offer and I trusted it. So basically, it, I, my, I was competing on price and, and, and that is basically still true today. So, I, you know, lower transaction cost people are all, the, the fact of the matter is that if you pay high transaction costs, eventually you will lose money, even if you happen to be right most of the time. Uh, so you, you need very, very low transaction costs in order to make money. And that's what we have always believed and that's what we always built on. And so sort of the build a better mousetrap and, and part of it and the other part being if you want more of something, make it cheaper, make it free. Um, you know, what would be some of the crises that you've, you've you know, we've all, we all know that there were various crises in the markets in the time you've been involved. Which do you figure have, have been the biggest, most dangerous ones and, and, and how did you um, avoid 
avoid the pitfall? Well, obviously, the, the, the greatest crisis I remember was the 87 crash. Uh, the, the problem was that, uh, you see, people didn't realize, and, and often still today they do not realize, that when you sell something short, there is no limit uh, that if you have to close it out, uh, a, a potential seller can charge you if there he doesn't have competitor, competitors. And in the 87 crash, things were so chaotic and many people were basically bankrupt and their clearing brokers were forcing to them to cover. As a matter of fact, the clearing brokers often send down their own brokers to take over the position and cover it. And I never forget this, this uh, situation in which there was a, a fellow, uh, somebody was short just five puts, five put contracts on a $25 stock. And, and the broker had to cover the, the, the contracts. And, and he comes and he says, where can I buy five of these? And it's a $25 stock. So nobody said anything. And he said, okay, $25. Nobody yeah. said anything. He said, $30. Nobody said anything. $35. Finally, somebody sold him the, the, the five contracts at $40 each on a $25 stock, the five puts, right? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so the, the issue is that when you are short an option, there and, and there is complete chaos, there is no rational price at which it's available to you if there is chaos. And that was that is the same story with basically GameStop when it went to $500. And uh, so shorting things is when there isn't an exact offset that you can guaranteed to be able to lay your hands on that's a very dangerous game yeah no and one thing i learned that was i had just started in the business at that point and i remember being in the morning meeting at solomon brothers at the time and they had said basically the specialist system was broke the clearing firms were hanging on by a thread um and that was later what got the map the you know let's say the first of the massive liquidity injections from the fed which I guess is a topic for a later podcast, but we'll, um, you know, that 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 lesson stuck with everybody. And I know that when we were trading options, um, the model was set up to never be short disaster puts, basically for that for that reason. Uh, at least at our firm. Yes. yes. No. 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 <laughs> I, I can't speak for others. I know. I know what we did, and that was never be short disaster puts, um, and it it paid off a lot of times too. Um, I, yeah, I saw it in action. And we lost money on it, but but overall, we always made sure that we'll be alive and we will never default on anybody. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I I think back to the um, to the long term capital management crisis. You know when, you know, yeah. and and even though we had done nothing wrong, and even though we had the disaster puts, the leaps were getting marked against us, and that was a, a fairly hairy time. Um, not of our own making, and we had the right position. And even then, the, 
that's right. Yeah. I mean, even in the 87 crash, we had the situation where we were making markets and options on all the US exchanges. And uh, one of the exchanges that traded index options was the, at that time, the New York Stock Exchange Futures Exchange, mm-hmm. called the Knife. Knife. And they traded index options on stocks uh, called the Knife up, Knife, Knife Index. Uh, and they were basically commodities so they didn't they weren't cleared by the options clearing corporation they were cleared by a subsidiary of the options clearing corporation called knife clearing so it just so happens that we, while we were long delta in stock options we were short delta on the knife so while we had huge losses when uh, of the crash we had huge losses on the stock options we had more than offsetting gains on the futures exchange here comes the problem you the, the OCC came to collect the losses at 9 a.m and was paying the gains at 10 a.m and so I said and we said we can pay the losses and they said, well, if you can pay the losses, you are in trouble. We have to close you down. And I said, why don't you pay yourself? You, you, you have both the long <laughs> positions and the short positions. And they said, well, you're not authorized to do that because there are new rules. So for three days, we were suspended. And after the, the third day, the SEC... Uh, gave OCC a special permission to pay itself on our behalf from one pocket to the other. And uh, so that was a very tricky time. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Um, Let me just ask this. This is more of a personal question. Have you ever thought of writing an autobiography? (laughs) I'm I'm happy to get these stories for our podcast, but have you ever thought of putting them down? Oh, of course, I will. One day when I will have nothing to do, I will do it. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I, I don't know when that day will happen because, uh, you know, uh, c- clearly you've been engaged day to day. You've stepped back from the CEO role in your message to the firm, New Year's message, holiday message. You've been nothing but pleased with that. Um, any comments you want to make about transitioning away from, from CEO? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's wonderful because uh, Milan basically takes on all the all the the things that I had. I was beginning to have difficulty keeping everything in my head. You know, as you grow older, it becomes a little more difficult. And uh, so it's wonderful that that he is uh, incredibly competent and we can all rely on his leadership. And I can contribute wherever I can, and I still work eight, nine hours a day, seven days a week, and I love it. But I don't have to take care of everything. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's so a the, great relief. <laughs> for for someone as engaged in you, that sort of counts as retirement, I guess, to a certain right. extent. <laughs> yeah, right. That's part one of our conversation with Thomas Petterfee. He has a lot more stories to tell and opinions to share in our next installment. 
I hope you come and have a listen. Thanks for listening to Traders Insight Radio. As always, there's more content at tradersinsight.news. And if you're interested in learning more about interactive brokers, visit ibkr.com. We offer more trading education materials such as webinars at ibkrwebinars.com, market-related courses at tradersacademy.online, and quant-related articles at ibkrquant.com. The analysis in this material is provided for information only and is not and should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security. To the extent that this material discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic or political conditions, it should not be construed as research or investment advice. To the extent that it includes references to specific securities, commodities, currencies, or other instruments, those references do not constitute a recommendation by IBKR to buy, sell, or hold such investments. The material does not and is not intended to take into account the particular financial conditions, investment objectives, or requirements of individual customers. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and, as necessary, seek professional advice. Options involve risk and are not suitable for all investors. For more information, read the characteristics and risks of standardized options, or ODD, which may be accessed through the link found in the show's notes or podcast description page. Futures are not suitable for all investors. The amount you may lose may be greater than your initial investment. Before trading futures, please read the CFTC Risk Disclosure. A copy and additional information are available at ibkr.com.